Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to an observable version of Software Gone Wild. And you will see why I said observable in a minute. So finally, we managed to stop talking about uh, Zoom backgrounds and the various sci-fi themes that we grew up with. And we figured out that we are in three different generations. And as there are six of us on this call, that sort of makes sense. So where do I start? Well, with the usual crew. Hi, Chris. Hi, Nick. Hi, Dave. How are you guys doing? How's it going? Living the best Q life. <laughs> that about sums it up. And our guest stars for today are Dinesh Dad, that you all know from a number of uh, previous podcasts. And uh, Justin, I would mangle your last name anyway. So why don't we start with you and you introduce yourself? I'm Justin Peach. It's just Peach like a freak. I am partnering with Dinesh. We built, we just released some software we call Fuziku, which I think we're talking about today. Before working with the Nash, I worked at Amazon and AWS for 17 years as a principal network engineer. Thank you. And for two people who have never heard of Dinesh, would you introduce yourself as well? Oh, sure. <laughs> Dinesh, that, what do I do? I don't know. When I figure out, I'll tell you. I guess I do podcasts with Ivan, uh, make bad jokes, write bad books, and now write bad software. Okay, so because he doesn't want to do that, let me talk about his previous sins. I don't know whether he was involved with Catalyst, but he was definitely involved with Nexus OS. I was. Catalyst 6500, all the Earl 4, Earl 5, Earl 6, Earl 7, all those chipsets. Dinesh, I'm so sorry. Yes, that's what Justin keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> you had a painful life. Yes. But this guy never learns. So he had to get involved with Cisco's DFA and a bit of ACI and then went open source and had to reinvent local area mobility, only now called Trist with ARP. But he did a great job on making BGP in data centers usable. And other vendors still haven't got the memo, but this is not today's topic, so let me not get started on that. <laughs> Have I missed something? Oh, lots of things, but all good ones. <laughs> As they say, all the good things that Ivan said about me is true. The rest I'm not so sure of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then actually, you should just wear a shirt that says Google me. Yes. I'll do that. Actually, that's not a bad, but that's too vain. I'm sorry. I I feel too uh, embarrassed to do something like that. But yes, uh, <laughs> the other thing I think that people remember is VXLAN, co-inventor of VXLAN. Yeah, there's that small little protocol that no one is using. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that small little protocol that was designed on three napkins and we still live with that mistake. <laughs> I can't believe it was three, to be honest. It seems... Uh... Well, it was simple before vendors starting using it as kitchen sink for everything. Yeah. Today, we'll talk about something with Q in the name, and that's why a few people wanted to choose Star Trek, the next generation, as their background in Zoom. But it's not that Q. It's some other Q. 
Dinesh was involved with something called NetQ a while ago, and uh, I don't think we want to go into that story. And then as he went on his own, he created something similar and called it SusyQ. So Dinesh, what is SusyQ and uh, why did you start working on it? So I started on SusyQ because I think when I look at networking, I mean, when we, when I got into Cumulus Networks, my primary motivation was the fact that I wanted to make networks accessible. The fact that networking was something that people innovated around rather than innovated with. And uh, Justin will tell you all of the headaches, why they went where they went because of how hard networks were. And you know that very well, Ivan, as do the others. And part of the problem for me was that solutions like SDN, which still does nothing, uh, except at maybe one company where I don't know what it does. But uh, the point is that they did not solve the problems that needed to be solved. There are many places I would show up as part of Cumulus Networks to have Big Switch and a bunch of others stand up and show this thing which says SSH. That's where networking is still stuck at. And they would make all these jokes and they would move on to talking about how OpenFlow would solve world hunger. The point was that, yes, networking lacked tools, but SSH was not the problem. Even uh, servers use SSH. The problem is we just lack good tools to understand networks. And to me, the problem was that I always felt that when I had to do something with networking, it was so hard because I had to log into so many different boxes to figure out what to do. And it seemed like it's a simple enough solution to fix. And I guess I wanted to do a version of it that would be open source that would work with multiple vendors and in general be of value to operators in a way that uh, I could not happen earlier. But also I think this is a different take on the whole process. This is an application as well as a framework. So I think Suzy Q coming back to it is something that I started on because I wanted networks to be beasts that people could observe rather than systems that nobody understood what was going on. I mean, I showed up at a client site the other day and I said, like, how many MAC addresses you have? Because they wanted to use eVPN and they wanted to see if Cumulus would fit the bill or they needed to go to Arista. I said, how many do you have? And they said, like, oh, today we are going from our access aggregation core. I believe we have maybe 60,000 MAC addresses. I said, wow, that's a lot. And I said, can you just show me? And after they explained a few things, I said, can you do the equivalent of show Mac on a aggregation box and just do a WC minus L, whatever is the equivalent of that and tell me. And we figured out that they had actually 3000 Mac addresses. And I find this over and over again, that people don't know their network at a very simple level. And then they, when they want to ask more complex questions of it, they don't know how to go about doing it except box by box. And so I wanted to address that particular problem. Yeah, and it's really amazing that it's 2020 and we've been promised the solution to this problem for the last 30 years in various glitzy PowerPoint decks made by various network management companies. And people still don't know how many MAC addresses they have in their network. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that, right? I mean, everybody, the game changes all the time as well. And so you don't have a simple way to go look at any piece of information and understand it in a meaningful fashion. Especially at layer two, every vendor has their proprietary extensions, proprietary things. And sometimes it's just hard to figure out, right? I mean, if you don't know, I mean, you may know at some level and you've forgotten and things grow in your mind. 
And I think the other problem I notice every time is the amount of cognitive load that every network admin carries with them is so high that the amount of information that they have to carry is so high. I mean, I think people wear stripes on how many IP addresses they can remember across their interfaces. Why would anyone ever want to remember that? That makes me cringe. I know, but that's what people do. I know, and I've long said that building a network is easy and running a network is hard. And that's really what this comes down to. Exactly. And I want to reduce the cognitive load a network admin has to carry in their head to be able to do anything. Hence the title of the blog post, it's not old age, but observation that leads to wisdom. Now you talk about observability. Let's define that first. I think Justin was trying to say something more because I think he also has a lot of pain about uh, this whole problem that we are trying to address. Yeah, I want, I feel like network engineering as a discipline is, I don't know, fairly a toddler and needs so much uh, improvement. And one of the things that SuzyQ allows is um, a holistic view of your network. So not just that it's easy to see the Mac, but it's easy to see all the Macs. And because we have all this data centrally and aggregated, we can really trivially ask intelligent questions and run intelligent checks. And and I want network engineers to think, to learn more that the network as a whole is the issue, not the individual device. I also find, you know, the individual router, especially which vendor it is, to be the least interesting part of networks. And this is, again, this is trying to be multi-vendor and where we don't care what's underneath, you ask the same question, you interact with the system the same way. I think that's a really important thing that not enough tools allow and not enough people try to do. So to your question, Ivan, of observability, to me, observability is a property of the system that allows me, there are various questions, I mean, various answers. You can go read about the answers, a bunch of them on uh, Wikipedia as well. But to me, observability is fundamentally the property of the system that allows you to ask it questions. And the ease with which you can get answers to those questions is the quality of its observability. It's almost like an introspection in a programming language, right? When you can go query the language itself for various characteristics about the program itself that you're writing. Similarly, it is important to be able to observe a system and to understand various aspects of it in meaningful ways, because then you can begin to see the patterns. And from those patterns, you can begin to understand what are the steps to take to make things better, or if things are working as well as they need to be. So you can do this continuously iterative upgrades, or you don't have to do continuously iterative, just upgrades. When you want to think you're going from one data center to the next, what are the problems you need to be focused on, etc.? in much better ways. To me, that is the basic point of observability. It's how do you handle, given the systems are getting more distributed, given that systems are getting more complex, how do you figure out ways in which you can begin to understand the system by breaking it apart and by piecing it together in interesting ways that are specific to you and the problem you're trying to solve? Inesh, so you've probably seen this on Twitter. There's been kind of various... (laughs) battles going on all around the observability space. And this is very much two approaches to this. I think there's a kind of iterate your way to getting the right level of information that you need so you can ask questions or collect everything, including the kitchen sink, and hopefully you've got the right thing in place before you can ask a question. 
So out of your kind of experience with Suzy Q, what kind of approach have you taken there? Have you just gone for a, a regular fruit of basket, which you've gone right? We've got MAC addresses, we've got things like um, ARP entries, we've got CPU and all this generic stuff. Have you started there and then allowed this thing to be flexible or have you just um, kind of cherry pick the things you think are interesting? I think I began with cherry picking the things that are of interest. You know, someone said, there is no free lunch. And uh, the bottom line is when you think you'll collect everything, what ends up happening is you're basically just putting the pain on somebody else downstream to figure out what they want. And I have thought about that approach of just gathering everything and then trying to do things later. And I found that that actually gets to be pretty cumbersome at times. So I began with a framework whereby I said, here are the things that I find I think are interesting to everybody. Now, there may be things that are specifically of interest to you and you can add those very easily to the system for some definition of ease. And so it doesn't matter what I cherry pick as what is interesting. There is a common base that is interesting to everybody and the pieces that are specific to you, you can easily add to the system and then extend the system to make it useful to you specifically as well. So the short answer is that I cherry picked and made it extensible so people can add to it. Yeah, but what you just described is just uh, SNMP polar in a modern disguise, maybe using a different mechanism to collect data. So what's the difference between a data gathering platform that we've been using for the last 30 years, let's say MRTG, and something like SUSIQ? So the data that we've focused on is not what you think of as time series data. So while we are collecting its interface data, we're not actually doing anything with it yet. So we're collecting things like LSPF tables, BGP tables, and those things. In some ways, we're turning those into time series data. So we're not looking at performance. Physically, is not about performance so much as like, what is my network up to? What is the current state of my network right now? And what was it in the past? So it's actually using SSH because the Nash wanted it to be as least common denominator as possible. And so because, you know, there's always the one of my giant frustrations with network vendors is they'll enable being able to see some important new data, but then they won't put it in SMP or it'll be different in SMP or blah, blah, blah. So Dinesh has made it just uh, SSH, mostly SSH for now, but we could, it's pretty extensible so that we could add other collectors. So yes, it's, the collector part is sort of a standard collector. It's more about the kinds of data we collect and then the questions that we ask. So going back to Yvonne's question then, of just trying to grok what you just said there, is the difference here that you're starting with the question you want to answer and grabbing the data that would allow you to answer those questions. And that is kind of the difference rather than from the traditional SNMP approach, like performance is something we've been doing for 30 years, but tell me what's normal, right? A lot of systems can't even do that not even doing 95th percentile. There's so many issues, like lots of stuff that we can all just point fingers and go SNMP sucks. Yes, I said it, but it's still all we have rather into a, um, into a scenario where you have a very like what was normal. My router just came back up. Am, am I back? Am I working? Like even to those kind of, are we looking at those human questions from an observability? The data that we're gathering is sort of standard data that you gather if you were logging into your router to understand if BGP was working, if OSPF was working, if what's in your art table. It's those standard things. We're collecting them all the time. So we'll notice that there are changes and then you can play it back to some degree. 
and you can ask questions about all of those things together. So the collection, the, the novel thing about the collection piece in Suzy Q is that, again, we've gone back just to SSH. Like we're saying in some ways S&P is too advanced, but really it's because S&P is treated like a, a red-headed stepchild. But really, we don't care about the collection. Like, we could add anything, but we wanted SSH for so we could be as multi-vendor as possible. And then we create sort of a standard data model for all that data. So SNMP tries to do the data model for you, and we've given up that that works, and we're doing it ourselves. I don't know. I'm kind of speaking out of turn since all these decisions Dinesh made without me a long time ago. So you're saying SSH as the interface, but SSH isn't an interface. It's just a protocol, right? So we're running shell commands, and then we're taking the output of those shell commands and turning it into our own vendor, non-specific vendor format. So by the time you're interacting with the data in our analysis tool, you don't know or care what vendor OS you have. I feel like the secret sauce here is the way that you're collecting and storing the data, not the mechanism that you're using to get it. Exactly. The secret secret sauce is we don't care about the mechanism. Right. Exactly. We so much don't care that we're using a shell. Right. So in theory, if you wanted to, if you wanted a real-time stream of, say, an IGP that you maybe didn't support out of the gate, you could, in theory, just spin up FRR as a listener and pull in the FIB to a system that also happens to be running this and parse it that way if you really wanted to, because you don't care how it's delivered. If it comes on a truck or in an airplane or on a rotten banana, it doesn't matter. Exactly. That's the fundamental. You hit the nail on the head. That's the fundamental point for me is take a look at compute. Compute does not care whether the information is available in a file, whether it's available via a command, whether it's available via SSH, whether it's available via REST API, whether it's available via gRPC. It doesn't care. It gets the information and gets going. Whereas in networking, if it's SNMP, it's fine. If it's not SNMP, good luck. And everybody's SNMP is its own beast. And it has its own set of problems, why it takes as long as it takes. So my approach was to say, one of the things I think we can all start with saying is two things. First, SNMP does not give you all the pieces of information that you can extract out of any system. Every system does its version of what it thinks is right. And then the rest is kind of like, you know, help yourself to it. So the first thing I wanted to do, whereas if you use the shell, you actually get a lot more useful information. Everybody puts something into the shell. They may never put that into the SNMP itself. So that was the first high-level statement I started with. I don't want SNMP because I don't get everything out of it. I can use a REST API, so I do support REST. So, for example, when I'm trying to pull the data out of uh, Arista boxes, I use their REST API rather than the shell. So depending on what box I'm playing with, I can change what transport I'm using to pull out the data. So it's exactly what Nick said. We don't care how the data is gathered. We care that it is gathered and it is stored so that then we can act on it. Okay, so you have data collectors that are vendor-specific and you can connect to the vendor box using Telnet or SSH or REST API or NetConf or streaming telemetry or BGP LS or pigeons or USB sticks or whatever you want to use and collect the data, and then you parse that whole thing. Good luck with that. 
and you abstract it into some common format. Uh, so you reinvented the Yang data models, but you probably don't call them that. And store that in some sort of time series database so that you can compare past with present and figure out what has been going on. So now we have the data there and we don't care how it got there. What can you do with the data then? Right. There are a couple of things I would like to point out to what you said. You need data models. I don't think there is any question whether you can work without data models. Data models help a lot. Abstractions help a lot. The question to ask is whether the models help you build what is there or do you have to reinvent everything from scratch? And my concern, or not my concern, my problem with any of the ones that are out there is they are all vendor specific. Let's take a simple example. Not a single Yang model out there supports unnumbered BGP. Not a single Yang model out there supports a simplified eVPN configuration. I don't want to waste my time sitting down and getting reduced to a common denominator that was agreed over a draft and a bunch of beer. I want to do something that's useful and I want to build something that actually makes sense so I can make progress. So I spent a lot of time actually before we started on all of this. One of the things as you might have all seen or realized, if it's not obvious, let me state it. I hate to work. I'm an extremely lazy guy. If someone has done something for me already, I'll very happily take it. So a long time was spent in actually sitting down and saying, what do I need to build? Can I not just take everything together, cobble it and just run with it? What do I really need to do here? So in that process of taking the time to think about it and look at it, I realized that everybody has a particular picture of the world and I don't necessarily agree with everything in that picture. And in order for me to fix that, I have to go through hoops and I didn't want to do that. So the first take was, yes, I invented Yang. Yang invented SNMP. OpenConfig invented Yang. Look, everybody is reinventing everything. Napalm has its own model. Everybody is reinventing everything simply for a very simple reason that this myth of a common uniform data model is busted when it comes to networking. People don't try those kinds of nonsense with compute. They just go with what they need to and they run with it. So Prometheus doesn't attempt to do things which is exactly like InfluxDB. They say, look, we can write a statistics and we will gather the statistics that we think is useful and move on. But this myth of a uniform data model that has to be identical across everybody and everything forever, I have found doesn't work at least as well. No, it didn't work for SQL either. Yeah, but that's, does what it needs to. And okay, it, the, thing being... about SQL, the thing about SQL is, SQL says, I don't care what your structure is. I'll allow you to query the structure, which is different. No, 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 no. Try doing anything more than a simple select statement with SQL and you'll immediately run into vendor differences. Oh, sure. That's why every software package, unless it has a really good abstraction layer, works with a single database system. Because no one ever wants to, you know, take care of all the differences between the various SQL implementations. We are no better, so why bother? So, but all that being said, for CCQ to do what you're talking about, there has to be a normalized data model. What yes. you're, if I understand what you're saying here, it's just, I don't care who, what other people's data models were. I'm just going to do what makes sense for us. Which yeah. I'm fine with, right? This is the XQCD. The five standards don't work. We need a unifying standard. Let's have another standard. Now we have six standards. Oh, yeah. And I'm not even trying to define a standard here, right? I'm basically saying these are the pieces of information I need in order that I find that I think is useful to make sense of the world. 
Some of it comes from open config. We are gathering the same pieces of data. Some of the stuff I may not be getting from open config because open config doesn't have a way to present that data. So I change what is involved in order to make this software, this system work to the best of its ability. So Tanesh, if we kind of throw the idea of this kind of godlike data model out the window, um, there still has to be some type data, some type scalars. So what do you handle? I mean, have you selected a subset of those? So strings and integers and all that kind of stuff. Yep. So yep. what's that look like today then? So what it looks like today is essentially that you've got, I try and keep everything. The way I look at it is, can I reduce at the end of the day, the read access, the query access to be as simple as possible so that people are not constantly converting. A simple example to your types would be store everything as a string, convert them when you need to and do what you want. But then that ends up making things very complex for the querier. Because one of the things to start with again is it's easy to dump all of this in a particular format, pick your favorite, and then tell people just go run your SQL queries on it or whatever else. But network admins are not data scientists. They are not SQL query operators. And I wanted to keep it in a way that would be simple for people to operate. I want, you know, the, to go by uh, an old maxim. I want the easy to be easy, the common to be easy. And I want the uncommon to be maybe a little difficult, meaning you have to write a Python program, but not impossible. I don't want to make everything impossible or very difficult and not at the same time say, I made everything easy and what falls out of the script is something you cannot do at all because I did not imagine it. So to the question that is being posed here, I said, I want to reduce everything to the types in a way that makes sense. So ASN numbers are ASN numbers. AFI SAFI is a string. Peer names are uh, numbers. IP addresses are IP addresses. So I have a few things like that. So we define a schema. So if you go into Suzy Q, the uh, Docker container into config and look under the schema, you'll see all the different objects and what types we have defined for them. Okay, now that we have all this stuff in some sort of database, what can you do with it and how can I interact with that? So the database, the data we store is in parquet format. So you can, so parquet files, so you can move them around. And if you care about parquet, you can directly access that. Our really, our common layer though is really pandas data frames. So we put everything into a pandas data frame and then you can manipulate things like that. Okay. What you just explained sounds like Latin to networking engineers who are listening to this. So try again. <laughs> For a user, we have a CLI. So kind of back to your question of what can you do with it? If you're willing to write Python, everything is in a data frame. If you just want to interact with it and see the data, the things that we already provide, we have a CLI where you can ask questions. And, okay, and so not just a data frame, but one of the most common, if not the most common data science Python packages yeah, that's yeah. out there right now. The Those, reason that Python is so very popular is Pandas. It's not networking, but it's, it's at least there's a commonality and there's tons of information out there to be able to learn it. Another reason I bring up Pandas is this is one of the reasons that we can one of the very important things as you'll listen to Dinesh rant about these ideas is he wanted to make it so that he plug and play. Like if this parquet format is the wrong thing, then we can pretty trivially add another different kind of database because there's this nice pandas interface. So he wanted to not care about things like, as we just talked about, SSH, what Yang, open config, whatever, not care about that. He also wanted to not care about the database. But back to Yvonne's question, 
but there's a CLI with pretty nice help and uh, it can guide you through questions you can ask. So you can interact with the system either through Python API and there you're using a standard big data library. So anyone who ever did any query on any big data platform will find that familiar. And for old people who went into networking because they hated to learn about programming, they can still use CLI. If you just want to ask questions that we already know how to ask, the CLI is it's faster. I mean, I use the CLI to understand the network. Yeah, the CLI works pretty nice. If we already knew the question to ask, there are some things, obviously, that we didn't know to ask. So if you want to extend, you can with pretty trivially with Python. Yeah, so for someone listening to this, it would be like, yeah, academically, that sounds interesting, but okay, give me the meat. What exactly can I ask today? Yeah, so the way I think about it is, the way I think about the way you want to ask questions is like the zooming that you do in a picture. You want to be able to start at a very high level. You want to see the landscape and then you want to decide like, hmm, that mountain looks interesting. I want to go look at that mountain. Hmm, in this mountain, I see certain unique features. I want to look at that a little more. Oh my God, this has a bunch of things that I did not realize. There was a mining activity and the whole side of the mountain has been completely destroyed. And who was the miner who did this kind of mess? So we want to be able to zoom in and zoom out of the picture. So one of the things you can do is at a very high level, we the structure of everything is that everything is an object. As in, we have a bunch of objects. There's a BGP object. There's a routes object. There is a OSPF object, et cetera, et cetera. And each of the objects supports a bunch of verbs. We are adding more and more verbs, but the standard set of verbs that are supported today are show, you know what it does, summarize, unique, and talk. So when you say summarize, it summarizes the information across your entire network. So for example, if you take route summarize and you say, show me route summary, what it does is it says there are 25 devices. Your The routing table across all of these devices amounts to about a million entries out of which there are really only a thousand unique prefixes. Those thousand unique prefixes are spread across three VRFs with these VRFs having these counts. It has been populated mostly from these protocols with these counts for each of the routes. And there are a set of hosts which do not have a default route on them in a set of words. So at a very high level, and if there is ECMP, so at a very high level, you get like, oh, so my network has these many routes, these many unique prefixes. This is the breakdown of the prefixes. This is the breakdown of the words. And these are the protocols that populated it. Now I want to zoom in even further. You can start zooming in. So at a high level, you can have this notion of summary, show, and unique to look at different pieces of information from different perspectives. To add to all of this, we also have something called assert. So you can write assertions the way you can do other things. So for example, you can create an assert that says, make sure that every single ISL interface I'm on has an LLDP enabled. So maybe, for example, someone did not enable LLDP. You can write an assert to that. We provide a set of basic asserts, but you can write an assert to that And if it fails, you can say, I need to go fix it. And why was this assert a failure? So we provide asserts for BGP so that you can run and verify that your BGP is up and running. For example, sessions may be established. Everything is working. But if the right AFI-SAFI did not get exchanged, you are having network connectivity problems that you didn't figure out. 
Then the second thing is we have got asserts for eVPN. We have asserts for MTU. We have asserts for OSPF. And we have asserts, uh, I think for MLAG, maybe we, I didn't add for MLAG yet. So we have these basic asserts to start with, but we are planning to make the asserts more sophisticated and see if we can provide a mechanism. And we haven't come up with that yet. A mechanism whereby users can define the asserts they want to run and it runs and reports that back to your system. Okay, for networking engineers, let me translate that. You've heard about these magic things called unit tests that you would run and they would test, you know, all the things that could go wrong in your system, well, your network in this case. And this is exactly what they are doing with asserts here, right? Yep, assert is basically an assertion that has to be true. So you can say, I want to assert that the MTU is accurate is matching across all my interfaces in my network. I want to assert that all of the BGP sessions have exchanged the same address information across both ends. It is not that one side is saying I want to do uh, IPv4 and the other side is saying I can do IPv4 and IPv6 and you only agreed on IPv4. Well, that might not be a problem, but that might be a problem. And so you want to kind of assert that. So you can come up with these statements which are these must be true in order for my network to work correctly. So that's an assertion. So you can run those based on the data that is gathered. You can run those assertions. And do you run them based on collected data? Or when I say, well, let's see if the assertions are valid, you go out and check the actual current data on the devices. So we are always gathering data. So the data is the latest as gathered in rather than going out and polling every time someone asks for the data. And since we are polling at, what's the word for it? Fine grain period, we are polling every 15 seconds, so to speak. Over SSH, we have the accuracy of the last 15 seconds. We will support a push-based model tomorrow where you could have an agent-based model so you could get data even faster if required. But let's just assume 15 seconds for now. And so the data will be 15 seconds old when we gather the data. The other thing that we do is every, even though we pull the data every 15 seconds, we don't store everything every 15 seconds. We only store if something has changed. If the data is identical to what we got the last 15 seconds, we don't store it. So your database can be pretty slim because we are not storing it. And the other point that Justin made somewhat uh, quickly was this. One of the things that SuzyQ does differently to me than I have seen other systems done this way is that it works to not care about how each of the individual pieces work. So take as an example, the thing that we just talked about, pandas. So someone stands up and says, oh my God, you're using pandas, but you know very well, pandas does not scale beyond if you're, the amount of memory you have in your box increases too much, then pandas doesn't scale. What are you planning to do for that? Well, the way the model has been written and it's already been tested, but it's not supported right now in the sense like we have not released it. I have tested that it works with Spark. I have made sure that the engine works with Dask. Tomorrow you have got something new like Rapids that can do uh, pandas over a GPU. It'll work with that. So essentially the system, each piece is extensible. So if something better comes along, you can actually use it without requiring you to redo everything all over again. For example, the CLI will not have to change because the underlying engine changed the framework of how to make things work. 
I've got, got a question, question re- sorry, related to um, the collection piece, and I'm quite interested in Do you handle um, Schrodinger's problem? So the, the very fact of collecting data affects the integrity of the system that you're collecting from. So have you got any mechanisms in place to like back off if you begin to um, suspect you're affecting the system? Or is that something that you're not, you're not dealt with yet? 15 yep. seconds sounds aggressive. Yeah. So one of the things we do there is exactly the kind of thing you said. So we don't do 15 seconds independent of whatever happened. It's an adaptive system whereby if you took one minute to run this, I run it 15 seconds after that one minute. So if you take two minutes to run it, then I back off for two minutes, right? Because it's running every two minutes. So I run it only after the 15 seconds after that two minute is over. So there is a natural amount of time we back off. We have not yet added the support to back off even further. So for example, I pull every 15 seconds, but if the command ran for a minute, maybe I will not run the next one in 15 seconds. I'll back off for a little duration. That adaptivity is a little more tricky because maybe that just happened because there was a blip in the system at that time. In general, 15 seconds is fine. So we are not doing is every 15 seconds. So if a command takes a minute to run, we are not sending four of them already. And now the system is continuously sitting there busy with working on every command because it's gotten a bunch of commands in the time that it took to actually execute that command. So here's a question because I've done some stuff like this in the past on carrier routers. What's the largest route table you've tried to ingest so far? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things is the periodicity is adjustable for exactly this reason. So we don't say that it is 15 seconds and it's fixed. You can say that I want BGP pulled fast. I want routes pulled much slower. And that's one of the reasons. Yes, you're absolutely right. You attempt to pull routes every 15 seconds. Good luck to you, especially from a router of that size. So we are not planning to pull routes at that frequency. And routes is one of those things that to me at least is much better served like a log as a push agent rather than a pull model. Because pulling out a million routes every 15 seconds Oh, God. Oh, I've tried. If you can't tell, I keep skirting around the same subject over and over, which is ingesting these routes. It's encouraging to hear the way that you're doing this, because in models I've seen in the past, it, you know, trying to pull a a route table from a carrier router, right, or even a border router that's taking full table is going to run into all the problems that you just said, right? In the amount of time it takes to do a show IP you know, whatever, show IP route or what, whatever platform you happen to be on, it's going to probably try to run again before it's done spitting out, you know, 800,000 routes of just the V4 table, not let alone the V6 table. So, But back um, to your question, we've only run it on vagrant instances. We don't own a network anymore. I have worked at a network with very large tables, but we don't. Between the two of us, we didn't have a spare couple million dollars to buy some carrier boxes and just go on and run them. Well, no, that makes sense, right? <laughs> you know, we, we can simulate larger, but yeah, we haven't. Exactly. We haven't done the larger simulation. But I think independent of that, your point is absolutely spot on. You cannot just pull all pieces of data equally at the same periodicity or even with the same frequency. So you will need to adjust some of those. And your rate of adjusting those will obviously affect Ivan's question of when I say what is going on, what is going on, which affects the Schrodinger's question of like, uh, you know, the not the Schrodinger's question, which leads to the 
Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can either pull and know exactly what's going on, or you can even try and log into every box. But the amount of time it takes you to log even into your box at that time to run that command and then move on to the next box, you're just spreading the problem. So some of those don't have really, what shall I say, simple answers, and you will have to tweak them as you go along. And the important part is you can. Well, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing two things. One is that you're thinking about the hard problems up front because those are hard things to solve. And a lot of times they just kind of get brushed over to the side and said, well, we'll think about that later. But you're thinking about them right out of the gate. The second thing I'm hearing between the lines here is that right or worse out of scope. But the second thing I'm hearing is testing this would be something that you would be looking for folks to do because no one's got a couple million dollars sitting around, right, to buy carrier boxes. So maybe some extra flight time as testers would be desirable. I'm putting words in your mouth here, but... Absolutely. No, thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes, you are putting words uh, into our mouth, but those are words we do want put in our mouth. (laughs) Uh, Because I think one of the things is like, you know, take the example, we can simulate pulling a million routes by stuffing a million routes into a VM and pulling it out. But that's not a real test, right? I mean, that just tells how quickly can we pull and, you know, it gives us some theoretical limits. But the carrier routers run a different CPU. They dedicate a certain amount of power to that CPU to a particular process doing certain things. And then if they're in the middle of some other things, they can run into all kinds of problems. So our simulations will never be an accurate reflection of the reality of pulling on out of these boxes. So yes, we do want real data so we can tweak these information. And also because it's in a simple enough fashion, it's not complicated. You just go into a text file and you say the periodicity here is different. I want to change this periodicity to this. We are done. So we could also, we haven't done this part yet, but it's, I've thought about all of this and you know, nothing is impossible. It just takes a little longer. So the software piece that I haven't done is to say, I have want to create groups of devices. So to say like, you know, I have border routers, those contain a million routes, pull them, only those guys pull them every five minutes. But I have my data center routers, which are not having that many routes, pull them every 15 seconds and you're perfectly fine. What we have is routes is pulled every minute, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, at least for Nick's use case, you should probably rely on something like BGP feed or BGP management protocol or what have you, anything but inspecting the routing table and the BGP table through SSH. Oh, I mentioned that exactly for that reason, because I want that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So one of the things uh, I have looked at is, should we look at doing BMP? Or should we attempt to use, so one of the things that FRR does, and I don't think, again, because of FRR, I may have to move away from uh, thinking of it like that, is this thing called MRT, where it dumps to a file every change that is done in a compact binary format that you can then pull out. But instead of that, because not everybody does MRT, I will have to look at something like a BMP to be able to pull that data out. You're absolutely right. So I'm fairly biased, but... Given the amount of time that's been put into BMP for projects that I've been involved with, like the route views project and in production, I would think that that would be a very standard, you know, good path to go down. Although I'm digressing right now, so I'll stop. 
No, I don't think you're digressing at all. I think you're making two important points, which is there are certain kinds of data that benefit from a different kind of pull and a different kind of extraction than some other kinds of data. And I think that by saying that and by talking about that or by digressing like that, you're actually emphasizing to me the strength of Suzy Q, which says, I don't care how the data comes to me. So each of these different pieces of data have a service kind of thing associated with it. So you could say that in the service file, I want BMP to be used with this service extraction and I want SSH to be used with that service extraction. Yeah, that was really what jumped out to me right away was that it seemingly had no care for how the data arrives. I think that's very forward-looking. Thank you. Those are the ideas, but that's not what's implemented. What I want to bring up from this part of the discussion is you know, this is just the very beginning of SuzyQ. We've released the first version that we think is useful for people and doesn't have too many embarrassing bugs. But we love people to actually dive in and try it out. And then we have so many different directions we can go. We have way more ideas than we have time for. So help us figure out which way to go. We're just going to guess. Please write code, write tests. Or, or write code too. Yeah. But at least, or at least try it out yeah. and help us figure out which direction to go. So a, a couple yeah. of things. Dinesh, you're probably one of the few people on the planet that will give the benefit of the doubt to on this one. So just I want to point that out. And specifically around the right code. What is it? So if you look at the ingestion piece, there's a normalization, data normalization. I get an SSH session. I run some CLI command of some kind. It comes in. Is that text FSM? Are we back to regular expressions raw? What does that process? And like, if we wanted to jump in and contribute, how would one go about doing that today? That's a great question again. Depending on how you pull the data out, because no matter what any vendor says, not every data comes out in a JSON format. You can use text FSM. Yeah, Ivan, I know, I know. <laughs> there are no such platforms. As an aside, I love the JSON that actually has a printout of the string, the raw string of the command that would come out. That's my favorite. No, 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 no. It's even better. Print out in XML envelope. Oh, yes. This is the other part. I mean, when I think I'll write a blog, we'll write a blog post about it uh, later on. But also when you look at JSON, right? I mean, this whole discussion to me of CLI versus API, I think the fundamental problem there is twofold. The first problem is the CLI versus API is hiding two important parts. The first problem is I do like structured input output. I don't like unstructured input output. So that is the first high level when you people talk CLI versus API. If the CLI spits out JSON, who cares at some level? The second part of it to me is the disregard that people use for JSON output. And it, this is across all vendors. It doesn't matter it, whether you talk about FRR, you talk about Arista, you talk about, take your favorite vendor. They all violate JSON in every single possible way. So for example, they'll say prefix and the Linux kernel, for example, when you pull out the data, for a default route, it has the word default rather than 0.0.0 slash 0. So you attempt to run IP network on that command. It says like, what? What the heck is a default? Default is not an IP network. You take Arista, they take an integer uh, quantity and in there they'll put in a string. This just goes across all of them. And then there, of course, they also change this value over and over again. So half of the Arista output has interface names as ET1. The other half has Ethernet one. When you type the command, it is Ethernet one. So there are like these 20 million different variations here to play with. But coming back to the question that you asked, Chris, 
what we do is what i have done is i've written a little this is a place where i felt that it needed some help so i've written a parser that allows you and unfortunately we are on a podcast we can't see it but if you go into say for example the bgp uh, service file which is under config bgp.yaml in uh, the docker uh, client uh, i'm sorry in the docker image that you will pull out for suzy q demo or suzy q itself you can see that there is a way for you to map how do you extract a piece of json data and what do you map it into so for example if arista says number of transitions and frr says flaps and somebody else says up down count you can map all of them into a single variable that is used as flaps if that's what you wanted and keep it that way so you can take json output convert it into normalized output and store it and there's a way for you to specify what's a default value to give you an example if you have a bgp session that is down the state of the bgp session will continuously flap between active idle connect active idle connect you don't want to store active idle connect every time now you're just exploding the data all you care about at that point is that it is established or not established and so you can in the same normalization you can specify without writing any code that i want to say that if it's established that's fine but if it's not established save it as not established then there are you can do other minimal things in that uh, normalizer where you can say like for example the uptime is given as milliseconds in frr and as nanoseconds in uh, arista you can normalize that and say just multiplied by 1000 so you always store it as milliseconds so you can write a lot of code i'm sorry you can do a lot of normalization without having to write code i will say though that one of the things here is this gets pretty complicated and we're, there's only two of us so we have we don't have great docs on this so another thing that we'd really like is you you say i'd like to support this new vendor or this new command and you look at it and you go this is too complicated i don't understand it that would be really great if you got that far then we'd have to write docs <laughs> like participate in any way including looking at things and saying i don't understand that would help us help guide us okay so imagining that i'm so excited by now that i want to test this out how can i do that so if you go to the github repo you will find a readme on the github repo itself so the moment you go to the github repo which is netenglab/suzyq you will see a readme and at the bottom of it there's a docker image that you can pull down which is called suzyq demo and the demo comes in with already data that's populated so you don't have to write a polar to figure out what is going on because as we said how we get the data is different so you can first figure out okay i pulled the data that's fine what can i do with it so you can play with it and then justin and i are writing a series of blog posts to talk about some of the different ways in which you can explore the data and there is also within the github itself there are two uh, documents and you get them right out of the readme itself which tell you how you could proceed to explore the data that is present already one of the data that is there is an osp of ibgp evpn dual attach and the reason i did that is that just covers like all the protocols you can think of <laughs> and the other is arista with single attached uh, ebgp so with the demo image you are already getting some data so that you can explore the cli and maybe even write your python code to process it exactly What if I'm really brave and I want to test this in my lab or even production network? So what you would do then is take exactly the same Suzy Q Docker image 
you can take the demo it doesn't really matter the demo just contains uh default data stuck in there so that you don't have to do the minus v option and then figure out where do i get the data from etc just trying to make everything as dumb as possible so that you can just make it work but in any case you take the docker image and in the docker image we have got two binaries one is called the suzyq cli which is the cli and the other is called the polar so you take the polar you gave it at the ansible inventory file if you're using ansible and you specify at a high level we have this grouping called namespace we originally called it data center but we think that the data center was a wrong name so we called it a namespace which essentially uniquifies name so you give it a namespace name and then you say go and it just goes and gathers all the data for the ones that it knows about so for example if you've got an ios box there it says i don't know how to talk to an ios box i'm sorry and it doesn't bother it just moves on so you run the polar with an ansible inventory file there is also if you don't have an ansible inventory file or you're terrified to trust your ansible inventory file there's a native format which you can use and there is a description of how to type that in which is essentially ssh with a username and a private key file does that make sense oh absolutely okay there were some other questions i want to say one thing so i'm kind of new to suzyq i've just been working on it in this calendar year and one of the things that i really like is um the dependencies are pretty small so like a single docker image and it really is all you need other than the config file and then you can start collecting data so yeah. you, so it should be we've tried to make it fairly trivial to just start collecting data in your network and start exploring yeah i just But wanted I mean, to ask chris because i think we left him a little dangling after my answer i wasn't sure if he understood my answer of the json pull the text fsm or was he looking for any clarification or was he were saying something like oh my god that's horrible why did you do it uh no no i was just trying to figure out what you are doing and uh two things that is text fsm and that's obvious in the repo and your build is failing so i don't know why the build is failing <laughs> i know it you did no you did it mlag eos Oh. It's, a, it's a test oh. failure. It's not an actual. The code okay. is fine. The test is no, no. Yeah. The answer was perfect, and this is you know you guys you did exactly what I would have expected and wanted, which is pointed us to the GitHub. It allows you to go in, start looking at it, and the answer's there. I am super happy that it's you're you're reusing tech that's already there. That's already been proven. Yes. That there's already people that have been doing in the industry. It's not a surprise having seen what you've done before, right? You're just continuing to attempt. to extend the things that are already there and build the things that are required rather than recreating exactly. the wheel over and over so no exactly. you did not leave me hanging perfect thank you i I'll try to ask this early on so now the question is well and truly out of context but going back to the collection piece how do you handle the kind of sardine canning and and like the work pool approach so i think there are several options there. you can either have one connection you just back to back every single call up or you have a <laughs> worker pool and you you paste them out between each of the members of the pool I mean how are you handling that particularly is that something you track or is every collector kind of independent in its own right as well so there's essentially uh, we maintain for now we have a persistent ssh connection i'm going to tear down the ssh connection every hour or so uh, as a security precaution because i think there was a man in the middle attack uh, if for a long lived forever persistent connection so we'll kind of tear down a, the persistent connection every now and then but essentially there's a persistent connection that's maintained to a particular node and every service kind of adds its work to the queue and the node kind of then pulls out the command runs the command and returns the data to the service uh, thread that is uh, requesting that particular data 
So that's how it works. And so it can execute, I think, uh, with SSH, there are four different, what's the word for it, or 10 different subcommands you can fire at the same time or channels you can use at the same time. So you can fire 10 commands up to 10 commands. We kind of kept it to five and said, like, you can fire five commands at the same time to the device and pull the data out maximum. Perfect answer. Thank you for that, Dinesh. That answers it nicely. Cheers. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things I think Chris made this point, I think, very well, and I appreciate you saying this to me, Chris. But every time you look at something and you say, like, why the heck did he do it? I hope the answer is because what existed did not satisfy the purpose. And here is why it did not satisfy the purpose. I spend a lot of time trying not to do something as much as possible because I don't like to write new code if I can help it. And if others are working around it and there's a community around something, I want to help that community, not start a new one. That sounds like a perfect answer. Thank you. So Dinesh, if someone wants to, you know, help you work on this and get in touch, how can they do that? Where can they reach you? They can read Justin and me uh, via the, so we have started a Google group. So you can join the Google groups, ask your questions over there. We'll be happy to answer. Also, we have email addresses. You can try Justin at stardustsystems.net or Dinesh at stardustsystems.net. So you can reach us that way or via LinkedIn. We prefer the Google Groups um, method simply because it allows both of us to be able to respond to them in a more constructive way and others to be able to see that answer as well. Thank you. Justin, anything to add? No. What about the others? I mean, does this sound like something that's interesting? The parts that looked interesting to you, the parts that you are still confused about, the parts that looked appealing to you, unappealing to you? I think it's safe to say um, I'm not confused by any of it. I'm just kind of keen to go and get my hands on. Obviously, I'm, I work for a vendor at the moment. We've got something very similar. I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm interested from a open source perspective. And I, I love the way, by the way, you've kind of iterated on, on what's already there. You've not gone, you've not tried to reinvent the wheel. And you've just kind of added some, I guess, much needed stuff on in that space. So I'm going to take a look. And yeah, thanks for all the questions as well. You've, um, you've made a nice explanation of this and nice project. Thank you. Yeah, I also have some interest in playing around with this because one of the things I've seen just as a hobby, I am a big fan of sort of grassroots internet providers. And one of the things I've found in just kind of watching that from afar is that there's not necessarily a, there's sort of the quintessential building a network is easy, running a network is hard kind of environment because it's usually done by necessity and the easier you can make the data accessibility for troubleshooting and really understanding what's happening on the network, the more likely it's going to happen. Because if it's not straightforward, it'll never get done. And making these things sort of more easily consumable, like where are all my MAC addresses? How many of them are there? Where are the routes? When did it change? That kind of stuff is difficult to do otherwise. So I think this is a very interested in, in piddling around a little bit with this. Thank you. And, you know, if you have, like I said, questions, uh, please post. uh, If you don't like something, please let us know. Happy to take feedback. The thing for me that's the most interesting, to be honest, is, and Nick put this perfectly, operating networks is hard. And that only comes through blood, sweat, tears, outages, taking down small countries, Yvonne. Anytime. (laughs) Yeah, we've all been there. And having... The collective experience of what are the right questions to ask starting from that point 
rather than just trying to gather all the data possible. That's an approach that we've needed for a long time, right? Is to have that collective approach of here's the easy things. And the byproduct of that, interestingly enough, could be that we could stop as a discipline, and I use the word discipline tongue in cheek, we could stop turning all the knobs because maybe those aren't supported in the asserts, right? So if the, you know, like imagine if that was standard operating procedure, how much more stable could networks become? So I think that's really awesome. I love the fact that you've got it in Pandas data frames because it's just a hop, skip and a jump over to scikit-learn and running ML models across that to get even more interesting um, exactly. That is why I chose the Pandas data frame because I felt that that was a nice intersection of various things. And you know, Chris, you say a point that I think is phenomenally helpful and Nick, you made the same point too, slightly differently. One fundamental way you can help us very, very easily is simply say, how do I know? How can I use Suzy Q to get answer to this question? If you can just mail us those questions, and it doesn't have to be a simple question. It can be as complex as you want it to be. If you can send us those, that help us understand how people run networks and therefore the kinds of questions they are asking. And let me just add the final bit to the whole thing. I don't know why you all focused on, you know, uh, observing and troubleshooting networks and no one ever mentioned forensics. That's because, because we had we wanted to leave something for you, Ivan. Ah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Because if you have, you know, the whole history of what has been happening in your network down to 15 second granularity, then you can effectively start exploring why was the network slow yesterday? Exactly. And Justin had this very nice thing that he was talking about, you know, because with what you have today, you can say, show me what changed in my routing table or in my BGP or in anything between 10 o'clock last night and midnight or all of yesterday, you can generate that report. And, you know, the outputs come in JSON format, CLI, of course, text format, and as well as CSV. You can take all of that output, put it in a file, and now you have a report which you can look at and say like, oh, why did this route change? Absolutely. Okay, time to wrap this up. As interesting as this is, we know how to reach you too. What about my co-hosts? Hmm, let's start with Chris alphabetically. Controlissues.net or NetmanChris on Twitter. Reach out if you need anything. Dave? Yep. I changed the blog over finally this year. So blog is dave.dev and you can find me on Twitter at underscore IP engineer. And Nick? Forwarding plane on Twitter, forwardingplane.net. On the blog. Yeah. Other places. Yeah, I hear your enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) I've got like three unfinished blog posts I need to just do. Yeah, and it's so hard to write. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm going so many places now. It's, you know, it's not like I'm stuck in the house or something. (laughs) Yeah, so many things to do. And you can find me at ipspace.net and uh, you know that I blog at blog.ipspace.net and you can find everything else we do just by following the top menu on every page and exploring. Thanks for being with us and I hope that you'll take five minutes, download Suzy Q and start playing with it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. 
If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.